Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. In the small, green-carpeted den, in the white-sided house, up north on a bluff overlooking the blue-watered Lake Michigan, rests a small bookshelf built into the wall of a tiny nook. On that bookshelf rests all sorts of old trade paperback mystery novels, as well as many other books presumably brought up by well-intentioned readers on vacation. There also, however, are a variety of old volumes last in print back in the mid-19th century whose topics include things such as Michigan history, sailing, and other titles I can't think of just now. One of those books on this shelf in my wife's family's Uh, vacation home, is entirely devoted to social etiquette and party preparation. The book was published in the mid-1950s, and my brother-in-law and I found much amusement one evening reading through the now antiquated social expectations that faced guests and hosts who were throwing or coming to parties and dinner events. Now, I could not for the life of me think of the exact title of this book. Otherwise, I would have looked it up on Google Books and tried to find some very specific examples. But I didn't want to leave you without any sort of examples. And so I managed to find a digitized version of a different book whose writing was pretty similar to the book I'm describing. The book that I found is one called The Encyclopedia of Etiquette. It was published in 1901 and written by a rather well-to-do writer named Emily Holt. You can look it up and read it on Google Books and put it into practice if you'd like. I will draw your attention this morning to chapter 4, whose title is simply Dinners. Here you'll find all sorts of expectations about when and how to send invitations to a dinner at your home about how you go postponing or, God forbid, canceling a dinner event you've planned, how exactly one should invite, uh, and I quote, stop-gap friend, 
to come to your dinner party at the last minute when one of your intentioned guests had fallen ill, but you need your table filled and you also need to make your stopgap friend feel good about not being invited to come in the first place. The chapter includes reference information about how to set your table, what time the party should begin, how your servants should be dressing, since the book has a very, very Downton Abbey vibe to it. We're not done. You can also learn important things like what temperature the dining room should be, what music is appropriate to play, what comforts your guests may require, how lit the room should be, what foods a typical six, eight, or 14 course dinner should include. <clears throat> Ahem. First, shellfish and buttered brown bread. Second, then soup. Third, hors d'oeuvres such as radishes, celery, olives, and salted almonds. Fourth, fish with potatoes and cucumbers. Fifth, uh, excuse me, that was fourth. Fifth, mushrooms or sweetbreads. Sixth, asparagus only. Seventh, spring lamb or roast with a green vegetable. Eighth, something called Roman punch. Ninth, wild game with a salad. Tenth, a second entree because the first nine haven't been enough. Eleventh, a rich pudding. Twelfth, a frozen sweet. Thirteenth, fresh and crystallized fruit. And fourteenth, coffee and liqueurs. The chapter also explores the proper wines to drink, how a host should welcome their guests, who gets to eat first, and how to balance men and women at the table, how to welcome a latecomer to the party with all of the stuffy civil pettiness you can imagine, such as nobody should rise to greet them, and the delinquent should present their apologies straight away to the host. The chapter explains when men are allowed to smoke their post-meal cigars, apparently it's only after the women have left the room, how one should dress for a dinner, and when it is appropriate for you to finally leave the party. Three hours, it says, from your arrival, so no dine and death. Church, in addition to the gargantuan portion of the turn-of-the-century sexism served here, this book and others like it offer the reader excruciating details on all manners of things that deal with social etiquette for a time long since past. The underlying assumption of this book, however, is that if you are going to go through all the trouble of preparing a 14-course dinner, and inviting your guests three weeks in advance, and if you're going to get all ready to host this event, well, you really ought to think about who you are inviting to the party. Not just anybody should get an invitation. Even your good friends may only end up being stopgap friends in case a more preferential guest had to decline. Social events such as the ones outlined in this book were used to climb up the social ladder, not down it, and it was important to invite people who would help you ascend. Today's gospel story is taken from a string of connected episodes that all take place on a Sabbath evening at the dining room table of a person that the text calls a leader of the Pharisees. We are no strangers to Jesus's Sabbath practices. Last week, You'll recall Jesus, over the protest of a synagogue leader, healed a woman with a deformed spine on the Sabbath, demonstrating to people that though we are called to rest on the Sabbath, God is always at work restoring and renewing, and so should we. 
here we are again on a different Sabbath day in a different town. But church, wake up and smell the asparagus course because Jesus is up to something. Today's story opens tellingly. On one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, verse 1 of chapter 14 says, they were watching him closely. They were watching him. Whoever the they includes, and at the very least, it includes the guests of the leader of the Pharisees who have been invited to attend this Shabbat meal. And if they were invited to attend the Shabbat meal, then they would be people whom the host considered to be social equals. In those days, whoever you shared a meal with was a public testimony about who you considered yourself equal to in society. To determine a guest list to a party in the first century, the saying went, likes eat with likes. Meals were not charity events. They were social bonding events. They connected people together from within a particular social strata. And if we know that Pharisees were well-to-do members of an upper social strata in the first century, we can assume that the guests at this dinner were also well-to-do members of the same social class. And what's more fascinating is that Jesus is invited to join them. Which tells me that the Pharisee who will be the host of this meal, this Pharisee doesn't feel he's breaking any social norms to invite this young rabbi from Galilee over for Sabbath dinner. In those days, much like the world of Emily Post and our encyclopedia of etiquette, meals were complicated social events where certain questions had to be answered long before the meal was served. Who will eat with whom? Who sits where during the meal? Who performs what action? Who presides over the meal? What will be eaten? How will it be prepared? What utensils will be used? What ritual acts will accompany the meal? What will be said during the meal? When will the meal take place? When will a certain food be eaten during that meal? Where will the meal take place? And how will the meal be served? Standing, sitting, or reclining? Meals were highly scrutinized social events, and here, just a little architectural insight, given the low, open windows of first-century homes, meals were also highly visible events. People knew who was over at so-and-so's house because they could walk by and see the guests sitting at the table. They could hear the laughter. They could smell the food being prepared. And so this Pharisee seems to think that if anyone passes by his house that evening, they'll look in and they'll see a bunch of folks who all seem to fit in nicely. This is a dinner for people who are all basically from the same social class. They shared similar beliefs. They understood each other's complaints about the Roman taxes. They knew and observed the same fashion trends. They wore similar types of clothing. They had the means to serve the kinds of food they all enjoyed and so on. This was a meal for like-minded people of a similarly aligned class. And so it might make more sense in today's gospel text as we begin to encounter those ominous words, that these guests were watching Jesus closely. In Greek, they were paratoreoing him. They were watching him, and not in the way his disciples 
watched him in order to imitate, nor were they watching him in the way one might watch a celebrity in awe from a distance. No, they were studying him as a specimen. They were searching him out. They were watching him to see if he made a mistake. They were lying in wait. They were stalking him the way a cat stalks a rabbit and then leaves its body on our deck. Come on, grace the cat. They were stalking him the way an older brother might stalk a younger brother, just waiting for him to take too many blueberries at breakfast or too large of a cookie at dessert. <clears throat> they saw Jesus as the odd one out at this Sabbath meal, and they were keeping tabs on him. They were watching this young rabbi, this unpredictable guest. Oh, they've heard of his work. They've heard of his teachings. They've heard of his miracles, but the jury was still out in their minds on whether or not Jesus was in bounds as far as the law was concerned. And so they were watching him closely, maybe waiting for him to slip up. Maybe you've been watched like Jesus was watched. Maybe you felt watched during a worship service because you didn't feel like you fit in with the others around you. Maybe you had a job with a boss who was watching you, waiting for you to make a mistake. Maybe you've been guilty of keeping tabs on somebody else. You've bided your time and you're just waiting for them to slip up before you feel justified in punishing them. Maybe you've watched your spouse waiting for them to slip up. Maybe you're a teenager here today and you feel like your parents are really, 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 really good at paratoreoing you all day, every day. Here we are, guests at a Sabbath meal at the home of a Pharisee and other socially equitable guests, and they were watching Jesus to see what he does at a dinner party. And one of the things Jesus notices is the way in which the guests at this meal had begun to file in and claim the best seats in the house for themselves. In a world full of social jockeying, everybody wanted the place closest to the host, places where the food would be brought first while it was still hot, the place where the wine would always be kept full, the place where the important issues would be discussed and where careers might be strengthened or enhanced, or as for my childhood, the grown-up table where dessert was always served first. To be close to the host was a sign of intimacy and prestige, and so Jesus observes the bunch of guests were trying to desperately get the best seats, maybe even offering to trade favors to move up to talk to the host. The text doesn't say where Jesus was sitting in this room, but many scholars believe that he was, in fact, the guest of honor at this meal, and as such, the host would have put him at the head table just to his right. And so when all eyes were on the host who led the table in the Shabbat prayers, Jesus would still be visible and from his vantage point, Jesus sees the yearning in the crowd to sit in the best spots, the one not tucked away in the corner or behind a pillar. And this observation leads Jesus to make two statements. Jesus gives two instructions in what we might call kingdom table manners. He institutes two mealtime practices that, if followed, would better align his listeners with life in God's kingdom. First, Jesus says, when you are a guest at somebody else's party, 
Don't seek out the places of honor. Don't seek out the best seats in the house, the privileged spots near the host. Instead, Jesus says, stake your claim in the back corner of the room behind the pillar, the spot nobody wants, next to those who just barely made the invite list. Assume, Jesus says, that you are deserving of the lowest place. And in saying it this way, he nearly verbatim repeats today's lesson from the book of Proverbs. If the host calls you up to the head table, Jesus says, you will be honored. But if you assume that you deserve a spot in the front, and if you find out you're just, turns out, a stopgap friend, and the host says to you, actually, I need you to go back to the back corner because somebody else more important needs your seat, well, then you will feel shame. Jesus says everybody who exalts themselves will be humbled, and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. Everybody who instinctually believes they are undeserving of a place at the host's table will receive an invitation to sit there for exactly what it is, a sign of grace and favor. But anyone who thinks they already deserve it, anyone who is already convinced of their intrinsic worthiness, will be doubly shamed when they're asked to move to the back. Okay, lesson one, don't assume you deserve the best seat. Let the host call you up there. Jesus says, lesson two, when you are throwing a big banquet and you have an opportunity to invite all these people you're hoping to get an invitation from yourself, when you have the option of showing off to your family or your wealthy neighbors, don't. Instead, Jesus says, invite the people who would never make your usual guest lists. Invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the blind, invite the people in the lowest social strata, the people who you assume, as people did in Jesus' day, were bearing the wrath of God. The people who you delight in not being counted among the people who are set apart in society because they don't fit in, they don't look the part, they don't have a place. Invite those people to your meal, Jesus says. Invite them into your homes where passersby might peer into your window and see you dining with those outside your social class. And why? Because these folks can't repay you, which makes your giving a party an act of grace and not one of reciprocation. Two lessons Jesus has, one for guests and the other for hosts, both provocative in his day, both spiny-barbed proposals that would have caused a stir among these social elites. And it would be tempting to make these lessons mere moralistic diatribes about who we are to invite into our homes or out to a meal after worship or how we ought to behave at parties and events, but moralism won't cut it today. I don't think these words of Jesus are merely about social conventions. I think there is something more at play. Jesus is teaching the church at mission and at worship to embrace an instinctual and wholehearted humility and generosity. Jesus is teaching the church what it means to be humble and what it means to be grace-filled. Jesus wants us to develop a knee-jerk assumption that says when we come into God's presence as we do here every Sunday, we do so as undeserving people. We are those who have comically and tragically failed to keep up our end of the bargain with God again and again, both by what we have done and by what we have left 
undone. Indeed, we need look no farther than the past week to know we have failed to love God and our neighbors as Jesus commands. Every week, it's the same story. And every week, we receive an invitation here to come and make confession and receive forgiveness. And Jesus suggests to us that it is good for us to come and put ourselves in the places of lowest honor to examine and trace the contours of our sins this past week and admit to God and to one another that we have failed. When we've done this and when we truly are convinced that we have, in fact, sinned, when we have come face to face with our own inadequacy before God, then we will be more ready, eager, and surprised to hear the invitation of Jesus to come to his table to be blessed forgiven and filled up full with the Holy Spirit. If we believe we do not deserve it, we will receive it for what it is, a true display of grace, a gift for the undeserving. Jesus is also teaching the church that as we gather at this table for Holy Communion, we ought to be embodying the radical, generous, throw open the doors and invite everybody energy that Jesus embodies. This is why we tell you every single week that you, yes you, yes you, even you, are invited to this table. Without precondition, without depositing an offering, without even knowing the name of a single person here, you don't have to have a single spiritual box checked. You don't need to know the Bible from the front to the back. You don't need to be able to offer beautiful prayers, nor does your life need to be perfectly in order. This is the table of Jesus, and he tells us to invite everybody, especially those who are already aware of their inadequacy, those who feel their sin prevents them from doing anything that is good. Invite those who will be able to understand that in receiving the body and blood of Christ, they are receiving the promises of God to be with us and to love us no matter where we go. And this, church, is what grace looks like in action. So church, let us get ready to come with humility and joy to the table of the Lord this morning. I speak to you in the name of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say.